Lecture four of Pioneers of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Megan Argo. Pioneers of Science by Sir Oliver Lodge. Lecture four. Summary of facts for lectures four and five. In 1564, Michelangelo died and Galileo was born. In 1642, Galileo died and Newton was born. Milton lived from 1608 to 1674. For teaching the plurality of worlds, with other heterodox doctrines, and refusing to recant, Bruno, after six years' imprisonment in Rome, was burnt at the stake on the 16th of February, 1600 AD. A natural death in the dungeons of the Inquisition saved Antonio de Dominis, the explainer of the rainbow, from the same fate, but his body and books were publicly burned in Rome in 1624. The persecution of Galileo began in 1615, became intense in 1632, and so lasted till his death and after. Galileo Galilei, eldest son of Vincenzo de Bonaduti de Galilei, a noble Florentine, was born at Pisa, 18th of February, 1564. At the age of seventeen, was sent to the University of Pisa to study medicine. Observed the swing of a pendulum, and applied it to count pulse-beats. Read Euclid and Archimedes, and could be kept at medicine no more. At twenty-six was appointed lecturer in mathematics at Pisa. Read Bruno, and became smitten with the Copernican theory. Controverted the Aristoteleans concerning falling bodies at Pisa. Hence became unpopular, and accepted a chair at Padua, 1592. Invented a thermometer. Wrote on astronomy, adopting the Ptolemaic system provisionally, and so opened up a correspondence with Kepler, with whom he formed a friendship. Lectured on the new star of 1604, and publicly renounced the old systems of astronomy. Invented a calculating compass or Gunter scale. In 1609, invented a telescope, after hearing of a Dutch optician's discovery. Invented the microscope soon after. Rapidly completed a better telescope, and began a survey of the heavens. On the 8th of January, 1610, discovered Jupiter's satellites. Observed the mountains of the moon, and roughly measured their height. Explained the visibility of the new moon by Earthshine was invited to the Grand Ducal Court of Tuscany by Cosmo de' Medici, and appointed philosopher to that personage. Discovered innumerable new stars and the nebulae. Observed a triple appearance of Saturn. Discovered the phases of Venus, predicted by Copernicus, and spots on the sun. Wrote on floating bodies. Tried to get his satellites utilised for determining longitude at sea. Went to Rome to defend the Copernican system, then under official discussion, and as a result was formally forbidden ever to teach it. On the accession of Pope Urban VIII, in 1623, Galileo again visited Rome to pay his respects, and was well received. In 1632 appeared his dialogues on the Ptolemaic and Copernican systems. Summoned to Rome, practically imprisoned, and rigorously questioned. Was made to recant 22nd of June, 1633. Forbidden evermore to publish anything, or to teach, or to receive friends. Retired to archery, in broken-down health. Death of his favourite daughter, Sister Maria Celeste. Wrote and meditated on the laws of motion. Discovered the moon's libration. In 1637 he became blind. The rigour was then slightly relaxed, and many visited him, among them John Milton. Died 8th of January, 1642, aged 78. 
As a prisoner of the Inquisition, his right to make a will, or to be buried in consecrated ground, was disputed. Many of his manuscripts were destroyed. Galileo, besides being a singularly clear-headed thinker and experimental genius, was also something of a musician, a poet, and an artist. He was full of humour, as well as of solid common sense, and his literary style is brilliant. Of his scientific achievements, those now reckoned most weighty, are the discovery of the laws of motion, and the laying of the foundations of mechanics. Particulars of Jupiter satellites illustrating their obedience to Kepler's third law. Satellite 1. Diameter 2,437 miles. Time of revolution, 42.47 hours. Distance from Jupiter, 6.049 Jovian radii. Period squared, 1,803.7. Distance cubed, 221.44. Period squared divided by distance cubed, 8.149. Satellite 2. Diameter 2,188 miles. Time of revolution, 85.23 hours. Distance from Jupiter, 9.623 Jovian radii. Period squared, 7,264.1. Distance cubed, 891.11. Period squared divided by distance cubed, 8.152. Satellite 3. Diameter, 3,575 miles. Time of revolution, 177.72 hours. Distance from Jupiter, 15.350 Jovian radii. Period squared, 29,488. Distance cubed, 3,916.8. Period squared divided by distance cubed, 8.153. Satellite 4. Diameter, 3,059 miles. Time of revolution, 400.53 hours. Distance from Jupiter, 26.998 Jovian radii. Period squared, 160,426. Distance cubed, 19,679. Period squared divided by distance cubed, 8.152. The diameter of Jupiter is 85,823 miles. Falling bodies. Since all bodies fall at the same rate, except for the disturbing effect of the resistance of the air, a statement of their rates of fall is of interest. In one second, a freely falling body near the Earth is found to drop 16 feet. In two seconds, it drops 64 feet altogether, viz. 16 feet in the first, and 48 feet in the second, because at the beginning of every second after the first, it has the accumulated velocity of preceding seconds. The height fallen by a dropped body is not proportional to the time simply, but to what is rather absurdly called the square of the time, i.e. the time multiplied by itself. For instance, in three seconds it drops nine times sixteen equals one hundred and forty-four feet. In four seconds, sixteen times sixteen, or two hundred and fifty-six feet, and so on. The distance is travelled in one, two, three, four, etc. seconds, by a body dropped from rest, and not appreciably resisted by the air, or one, four, nine, sixteen, twenty-five, etc., respectively, each multiplied by the constant sixteen feet. Another way of stating the law is to say that the heights travelled in successive seconds proceed in the proportion one, three, five, seven, nine, and so on, again multiplied by sixteen feet in each case. All this was experimentally established by Galileo. A body takes half a second to drop four feet, 
and a quarter of a second to drop one foot. The easiest way of estimating a quarter of a second with some accuracy is to drop a bullet one foot. A bullet thrown or shot in any direction falls just as much as if it merely dropped, but instead of falling from the starting point, it drops vertically from the line of fire. See figure 35. The rate of fall depends on the intensity of gravity. If it could be doubled, a body would fall twice as far in the same time. But to make it fall a given distance in half the time, the intensity of gravity would have to be quadrupled. At a place where the intensity of gravity is one three thousand six hundredths of what it is here, a body would fall as far in a minute as it now falls in a second. Such a place occurs at about the distance of the moon. The fact that the height fallen through is proportional to the square of the time proves that the attraction of the earth, or the intensity of gravity, is sensibly constant throughout ordinary small ranges. Over great distances of fall, gravity cannot be considered constant. So for things falling through great spaces, the Galilean law of the square of the time does not hold. The fact that things near the earth fall sixteen feet in the first second proves that the intensity of ordinary terrestrial gravity is thirty-two British units of force per pound of matter. The fact that all bodies fall at the same rate, when the resistance of the air is eliminated, proves that weight is proportional to mass, or, more explicitly, that the gravitative attraction of the earth on matter near its surface depends on the amount of that matter, as estimated by its inertia, and on nothing else. Lecture 4. Galileo and the Invention of the Telescope Contemporary with the life of Kepler, but overlapping it at both ends, comes the great and eventful life of Galileo Galilei, a man whose influence on the development of human thought has been greater than that of any man whom we have yet considered, and upon whom, therefore, it is necessary for us, in order to carry out the plan of these lectures, to bestow much time. A man of great and wide culture, a so-called universal genius, it is as an experimental philosopher that he takes the first rank. In this capacity he must be placed alongside of Archimedes, and it is pretty certain that between the two there was no man of magnitude equal to either in experimental philosophy. It is perhaps too bold a speculation, but I venture to doubt whether in succeeding generations we will find his equal in the domain of purely experimental science until we come to Faraday. Faraday was no doubt his superior, but I know of no other of whom the like can unhesitatingly be said. In mathematical and deductive science, of course, it is quite otherwise. Kepler, for instance, and many men before and since, have far excelled Galileo in mathematical skill and power, though at the same time his achievements in this department are by no means to be despised. Born at Pisa three centuries ago, on the very day that Michelangelo lay dying in Rome, he inherited from his father a noble name, cultivated tastes, a keen love of truth, and an impoverished patrimony. Vincenzo de Galilei, a descendant of the important Bonaduti family, was himself a mathematician and a musician, and in a book of his still extant he declares himself in favour of free and open inquiry into scientific matters, unrestrained by the weight of authority and tradition. In all probability the son imbibed these precepts, certainly he acted on them. Vincenzo, having himself experienced the unremunerative character of scientific work, had a horror of his son's taking to it, especially as, in his boyhood, he was always constructing ingenious mechanical toys, and exhibiting other marks of precocity. So the son was destined for business, to be, in fact, a cloth dealer. But he was to receive a good education first, and was sent to an excellent convent school. Here he made rapid progress, and soon excelled in all branches of classics and literature. He delighted in poetry, and in later years wrote several essays on Dante, Tasso, and Ariosto. 
besides composing some tolerable poems himself. He played skilfully on several musical instruments, especially on the lute, of which indeed he became a master, and on which he solaced himself when quite an old man. Besides this, he seems to have had some skill as an artist, which was useful afterwards in illustrating his discoveries, and to have had a fine sensibility as an art critic, for we find several eminent painters of that day acknowledging the value of the opinion of the young Galileo. Perceiving all this display of ability, the father wisely came to the conclusion that the selling of woollen stuffs would hardly satisfy his aspirations for long, and that it was worth a sacrifice to send him to the university. So to the university of his native town he went, with the avowed object of studying medicine, that career seeming the most likely to be profitable. Old Vincenzo's horror of mathematics or science as a means of obtaining a livelihood is justified by the fact that while the university professor of medicine received two thousand scudi a year, the professor of mathematics had only sixty, that is, thirteen pounds a year, or seven and a half pence a day. So the son had been kept properly ignorant of such poverty-stricken subjects, and to study medicine he went. But his natural bent showed itself even here, for praying one day in the cathedral like a good Catholic as he was all his life, his attention was arrested by some great lamp, which, after lighting it, the verger had left swinging to and fro. Galileo proceeded to time its swings by the only watch he possessed, viz. his own pulse. He noticed that the time of swing remained as near as he could tell the same, notwithstanding the fact that the swings were getting smaller and smaller. By subsequent experiment he verified the law, and the isochronism of the pendulum was discovered. An immensely important practical discovery this, for upon it all modern clocks are based, and Huygens soon applied it to the astronomical clock which, up to that time, had been a crude and quite untrustworthy instrument. The best clock which Tycho Brahe could get for his observatory was inferior to one that may now be purchased for a few shillings, and this change is owing to the discovery of the pendulum by Galileo. Not that he applied it to clocks, he was not thinking of astronomy, he was thinking of medicine, and wanted to count people's pulses. The pendulum served, and pulsilogies, as they were called, were thus introduced to, and used by medical practitioners. The Tuscan court came to Pisa for the summer months, for it was then a seaside place, and among the suite was Ostilio Ricci, a distinguished mathematician, an old friend of the Galileo family. The youth visited him, and one day, it is said, heard a lesson in Euclid being given by Ricci to the pages, while he stood outside the door entranced. Anyhow, he implored Ricci to help him into some knowledge of mathematics, and the old man willingly consented. So he mastered Euclid, and passed on to Archimedes, for whom he acquired a great veneration. His father soon heard of this obnoxious proclivity, and did what he could to divert him back to medicine again. But it was no use. Underneath his Galen and Hippocrates were secreted copies of Euclid and Archimedes, to be studied at every available opportunity. Old Vincenzo perceived the bent of genius to be too strong for him, and at last gave way. With prodigious rapidity, the released philosopher now assimilated the elements of mathematics and physics, and at twenty-six we find him appointed for three years to the university chair of mathematics, and enjoying the paternally dreaded stipend of seven and a half pence a day. Now it was that he pondered over the laws of falling bodies. He verified, by experiment, the fact that the velocity acquired by falling down any slope of given height was independent of the angle of the slope. Also that the height fallen through was proportional to the square of the time. Another thing he found experimentally was that all bodies, heavy and light, fell at the same rate, striking the ground at the same time. Now this was clean contrary to what had been taught, 
The physics of those days were a simple reproduction of statements in old books. Aristotle had asserted certain things to be true, and these were universally believed. No one thought of trying the thing to see if it really were so. The idea of making an experiment would have savoured of impiety, because it seemed to tend towards scepticism, and to cast a doubt on a reverend authority. Young Galileo, with all the energy and imprudence of youth, what a blessing that youth has a little imprudence and disregard of consequences in pursuing a high ideal, as soon as he perceived that his instructors were wrong on the subject of falling bodies, instantly informed them of the fact. Whether he expected them to be pleased or not is a question. Anyhow, they were not pleased, but were much annoyed by his impertinent arrogance. It is, perhaps, difficult for us now to appreciate precisely their position. These doctrines of antiquity, which had come down hoary with age, and the discovery of which had reawakened learning and quickened intellectual life, were accepted less as a science or a philosophy, than as a religion. Had they regarded Aristotle as a verbally inspired writer, they could not have received his statements with more unhesitating conviction. In any dispute as to a question of fact, such as the one before us concerning the laws of falling bodies, their method was not to make an experiment, but to turn over the pages of Aristotle, and he who could quote chapter and verse of this great writer was held to settle the question, and raise it above the reach of controversy. It is very necessary for us to realise this state of things clearly, because otherwise the attitude of the learned of these days towards every new discovery seems stupid and almost insane. They had a crystallised system of truth, perfect, symmetrical. It wanted no novelty, no additions. Every additional growth was an imperfection, an excrescence, a deformity. Progress was unnecessary and undesired. The Church had a rigid system of dogma, which must be accepted in its entirety on pain of being treated as a heretic. Philosophers had a cast-iron system of truth to match, a system founded upon Aristotle, and so interwoven with the great theological dogmas that to question one was almost equivalent to casting doubt upon the other. In such an atmosphere true science was impossible. The lifeblood of science is growth, expansion, freedom, development. Before it could appear it must throw off those old shackles of centuries. It must burst its old skin and emerge, worn with the struggle, weakly and unprotected but free and able to grow and to expand. The conflict was inevitable, and it was severe. Is it over yet? I fear not quite, though so nearly as to disturb science hardly at all. Then it was different, it was terrible. Honour to the men who bore the first shock of the battle. Now Aristotle had said that bodies fell at rates depending on their weight. A five-pound weight would fall five times as quick as a one-pound weight, a fifty-pound weight fifty times as quick, and so on. Why he said so nobody knows. He cannot have tried. He was not above trying experiments, like his smaller disciples, but probably it never occurred to him to doubt the fact. It seemed so natural that a heavy body should fall quicker than a light one, and perhaps he thought of a stone and a feather, and was satisfied. Galileo, however, asserted that the weight did not matter a bit, that everything fell at the same rate, even a stone and a feather, but for the resistance of the air and would reach the ground in the same time. And he was not content to be pooh-poohed and snubbed. He knew he was right, and he was determined to make everyone see the facts as he saw them. So one morning, before the assembled university, he ascended the famous leaning tower, taking with him a one-hundred-pound shot and a one-pound shot. He balanced them on the edge of the tower, and let them drop together. Together they fell, and together they struck the ground. 
The simultaneous clang of those two weights sounded the death-knell of the old system of philosophy, and heralded the birth of the new. But was the change sudden? Were his opponents convinced? Not a jot. Though they had seen with their eyes, and heard with their ears, the full light of heaven shining upon them, they went back muttering and discontented to their musty old volumes and their garrets, there to invent occult reasons for denying the validity of the observation, and for referring it to some unknown disturbing cause. They saw that if they gave way on this one point, they would be letting go their anchorage, and henceforward would be liable to drift along with the tide, not knowing whither. They dared not do this. No, they must cling to the old traditions. They could not cast away their rotting ropes and sail out onto the free ocean of God's truth in a spirit of fearless faith. Yet they had received a shock, as by a breath of fresh salt breeze and a dash of spray in their faces, they had been awakened out of their comfortable lethargy. They felt the approach of a new era. Yes, it was a shock, and they hated the young Galileo for giving it them, hated him with the sullen hatred of men who fight for a lost and dying cause. We need scarcely blame these men, at least we need not blame them overmuch. To say that they acted as they did is to say that they were human, were narrow-minded, and were the apostles of a lost cause. But they could not know this. They had no experience of the past to guide them. The conditions under which they found themselves were novel, and had to be met for the first time. Conduct which was excusable then would be unpardonable now, in the light of all this experience to guide us. Are there any now who practically repeat their error, and resist new truth, who cling to any old anchorage of dogma, and refuse to rise with the tide of advancing knowledge? There may be some even now. Well, the unpopularity of Galileo smouldered for a time, until, by another noble imprudence, he managed to offend a semi-royal personage, Giovanni de' Medici, by giving his real opinion, when consulted, about a machine which de' Medici had invented for cleaning out the harbour of Leghorn. He said it was as useless as it in fact turned out to be. Through the influence of the mortified inventor he lost favour at court, and his enemies took advantage of the fact to render his chair untenable. He resigned before his three years were up, and retired to Florence. His father at this time died, and the family were left in narrow circumstances. He had a brother and three sisters to provide for. He was offered a professorship at Padua for six years by the Senate of Venice, and willingly accepted it. Now began a very successful career. His introductory address was marked by brilliant eloquence, and his lectures soon acquired fame. He wrote for his pupils on the laws of motion, on fortifications, on sundials, on mechanics, and on the celestial globe. Some of these papers are now lost, others have been printed during the present century. Kepler sent him a copy of his new book, Mysterium Cosmographicum, and Galileo, in thanking him for it, writes him the following letter. I count myself happy, in the search after truth, to have so great an ally as yourself, and one who is so great a friend of the truth itself. It is really pitiful that there are so few who seek truth, and who do not pursue a perverse method of philosophizing. But this is not the place to mourn over the miseries of our times, but to congratulate you on your splendid discoveries in confirmation of truth. I shall read your book to the end, sure of finding much that is excellent in it. I shall do so with the more pleasure, because I have been for many years an adherent of the Copernican system, and it explains to me the causes of many of the appearances of nature which are quite unintelligible on the commonly accepted hypothesis. I have collected many arguments for the purpose of refuting the latter, but I do not venture to bring them to the light of publicity, 
for fear of sharing the fate of our master, Copernicus, who, although he has earned immortal fame with some, yet with very many, so great is the number of fools, has become an object of ridicule and scorn. I should certainly venture to publish my speculations, if there were more people like you. But this not being the case, I refrain from such an undertaking. Kepler urged him to publish his arguments in favour of the Copernican theory, but he hesitated for the present, knowing that his declaration would be received with ridicule and opposition, and thinking it wiser to get rather more firmly seated in his chair before encountering the storm of controversy. The six years passed away, and the Venetian Senate, anxious not to lose so bright an ornament, renewed his appointment for another six years at a largely increased salary. Soon after this appeared a new star, the Stella Nova of 1604, not the one Tycho had seen, that was in 1572, but the same that Kepler was so much interested in. Galileo gave a course of three lectures upon it to a great audience. At the first the lecture was overcrowded, so he had to adjourn to a hall holding one thousand persons. At the next he had to lecture in the open air. He took occasion to rebuke his hearers for thronging to hear about an ephemeral novelty, while for the much more wonderful and important truths about the permanent stars and facts of nature, they had but deaf ears. But the main point he brought out concerning the new star was that it upset the received Aristotelian doctrine of the immutability of the heavens. According to that doctrine, the heavens were unchangeable, perfect, subject neither to growth nor to decay. Here was a body, not a meteor, but a real distant star, which had not been visible, and which would shortly fade away again, but which, meanwhile, was brighter than Jupiter. The staff of petrified professorial wisdom were annoyed at the appearance of the star, still more at Galileo's calling public attention to it, and controversy began at Padua. However, he accepted it, and now boldly threw down the gauntlet in favour of the Copernican theory, utterly repudiating the old Ptolemaic system which up to that time he had taught in the schools, according to established custom. The earth no longer the only world to which all else in the firmament were obsequious attendants, but a mere insignificant speck among the host of heaven. Man no longer the centre and cenosia of creation, but, as it were, an insect crawling on the surface of this little speck. All this not set down in crabbed Latin, in dry folios for a few learned monks, as in Copernicus's time, but promulgated and argued in rich Italian, illustrated by analogy, by experiment, and with cultured wit, taught not to a few scholars here and there in musty libraries, but proclaimed in the vernacular to the whole populace, with all the energy and enthusiasm of a recent convert and a master of language. Had a bombshell been exploded amongst the fossilised professors, it had been less disturbing. But there was worse in store for them. A Dutch optician, Hans Lippergy by name, of Middleburg, had in his shop a curious toy, rigged up, it is said, by an apprentice, and made out of a couple of spectacle lenses, whereby, if one looked through it, the weathercock of a neighbouring church spire was seen nearer and upside down. The tale goes that the Marquis Spinola, happening to call at the shop, was struck with the toy and bought it. He showed it to Prince Maurice of Nassau, who thought of using it for military reconnoitring. All this is trivial. What is important is that some faint and inaccurate echo of this news found its way to Padua and into the ears of Galileo. The seed fell on good soil. All that night he sat up and pondered. He knew about lenses and magnifying glasses. He had read Kepler's theory of the eye, and had himself lectured on optics. Could he not hit on the device, and make an instrument capable of bringing the heavenly bodies nearer? 
who knew what marvels he might not so perceive. By morning he had some schemes ready to try, and one of them was successful. Singularly enough, it was not the same plan as the Dutch opticians. It was another mode of achieving the same end. He took an old small organ-pipe, jammed a suitably chosen spectacle-glass into either end, one convex and the other concave, and, behold, he had the half of a wretchedly bad opera-glass, capable of magnifying three times. It was better than the Dutchman's, however. It did not invert. It is easy to understand the general principle of a telescope. A general knowledge of the common magnifying-glass may be assumed. Roger Bacon knew about lenses, and the ancients often refer to them, though usually as burning-glasses. The magnifying power of globes of water must have been noticed soon after the discovery of glass, and the art of working it. A magnifying glass is most simply thought of as an additional lens to the eye. The eye has a lens by which ordinary vision is accomplished. An extra glass lens strengthens it, and enables objects to be seen nearer, and therefore apparently bigger. But to apply a magnifying glass to distant objects is impossible. In order to magnify distant objects, another function of lenses has also to be employed, viz. their power of forming real images, the power on which their use as burning glasses depends, for the best focus is an image of the sun. Although the object itself is inaccessible, the image of it is by no means so, and to the image a magnifier can be applied. This is exactly what is done in the telescope. The object glass, or large lens, forms an image, which is then looked at through a magnifying glass or eyepiece. Of course, the image is nothing like so big as the object. For astronomical objects it is almost infinitely less, still it is an exact representation at an accessible place, and no one expects a telescope to show distant bodies as big as they really are. All it does is to show them bigger than they could be seen without it. But if the objects are not distant, the same principle may still be applied, and two lenses may be used, one to form an image, the other to magnify it, only if the object can be put where we please. We can easily place it so that its image is already much bigger than the object, even before magnification by the eye-lens. This is the compound microscope, the invention of which soon followed the telescope. In fact, the two instruments shade off into one another, so that the reading telescope, or a reading microscope of a laboratory, reading thermometers and small divisions generally, goes by either name at random. The arrangement so far described depicts things on the retina the unaccustomed way up, by using a concave glass instead of a convex, and placing it so as to prevent any image being formed, except on the retina direct, this inconvenience is avoided. Such a thing as Galileo made may now be bought at a toy shop for, I suppose, half a crown, and yet what a potentiality lay in that glazed optic tube, as Milton called it. Away he went with it to Venice, and showed it to the Signoria, to their great astonishment. Many noblemen and senators, says Galileo, though of advanced age, mounted to the top of one of the highest towers to watch the ships, which were visible through my glass two hours before they were seen entering the harbour, for it makes a thing fifty miles off, as near and clear as if it were only five. Among the people, too, the instrument excited the greatest astonishment and interest, so that he was nearly mobbed. The Senate hinted to him that a present of the instrument would not be unacceptable, so Galileo took the hint, and made another for them. They immediately doubled his salary at Padua, making it one thousand florins, and confirmed him in the enjoyment of it for life. He now eagerly began the construction of a larger and better instrument. Grinding the lenses with his own hands with consummate skill, he succeeded in making a telescope magnifying thirty times. Thus equipped, he was ready to begin a survey of the heavens. 
The first object he carefully examined was naturally the moon. He found there everything at first sight very like the earth—mountains and valleys, craters and plains, rocks, and apparently seas. You may imagine the hostility excited amongst the Aristotelian philosophers, especially, no doubt, those he had left behind at Pisa, on the ground of his spoiling the pure, smooth, crystalline, celestial face of the moon as they had thought it, and making it harsh and rugged, unlike so vile and ignoble a body as the earth. He went further, however, into heterodoxy than this. He not only made the moon like the earth, but he made the earth shine like the moon. The visibility of the old moon in the new moon's arms, he explained by earthshine. Leonardo had given the same explanation a century before. Now one of the many stock arguments against Copernican theory of the earth being a planet like the rest was that the earth was dull and dark and did not shine. Galileo argued that it shone just as much as the moon does, and in fact rather more, especially if it be covered with clouds. One reason of the peculiar brilliancy of Venus is that she is a very cloudy planet. Seen from the moon, the earth would look exactly as the moon does to us, only a little brighter, and sixteen times as big, four times the diameter. Wherever Galileo turned his telescope, new stars appeared. The Milky Way, which had so puzzled the ancients, was found to be composed of stars. Stars that appeared single to the eye, were some of them found to be double, and at intervals were found hazy nebulous wisps, some of which seemed to be star-clusters, while others seemed only a fleecy cloud. Now we come to his most brilliant, at least his most sensational, discovery. Examining Jupiter minutely on January the 7th, 1610, he noticed three little stars near it, which he noted down as fixing its then position. On the following night, Jupiter had moved to the other side of the three stars. This was natural enough, but was it moving the right way? On examination it appeared not. Was it possible the tables were wrong? The next evening was cloudy, and he had to curb his feverish impatience. On the tenth there were only two, and those on the other side. On the eleventh, two again, but one bigger than the other. On the twelfth the three reappeared, and on the thirteenth there were four. No more appeared. Jupiter, then, had moons like the earth, four of them, in fact, and they revolved round him in periods which were soon determined. The reason why they were not all visible at first, and why their visibility so rapidly changes, is because they revolve around him almost in the plane of our vision, so that sometimes they are in front, and sometimes behind him, while again at other times they plunge into his shadow, and are thus eclipsed from the light of the sun which enables us to see them. A large modern telescope will show the moons when in front of Jupiter, but small telescopes will only show them when clear of the disk and shadow. Often all four can thus be seen, but three or two is a very common amount of visibility. Quite a small telescope, such as a ship's telescope, if held steadily, suffices to show the satellites of Jupiter, and very interesting objects they are. They are of habitable size, and may be important worlds for all we know to the contrary. The news of the discovery soon spread, and excited the greatest interest and astonishment. Many, of course, refused to believe it. Some there were, who, having been shown them, refused to believe their eyes, and asserted that although the telescope acted well enough for terrestrial objects, it was altogether false and illusory when applied to the heavens. Others took the safer ground of refusing to look through the glass. One of these who would not look at the satellites happened to die soon afterward. I hope, says Galileo, that he saw them on his way to heaven. The way in which Kepler received the news is characteristic, 
though by adding four to the supposed number of planets, it might have seemed to upset his notions about the five regular solids. He says, I was sitting idle at home thinking of you, most excellent Galileo, and your letters, when the news was brought me of the discovery of four planets by the help of the double eyeglass. Watchenfels stopped his carriage at my door to tell me, when such a fit of wonder seized me at a report which seemed so very absurd, and I was thrown into such agitation, at seeing an old dispute between us decided in this way, that between his joy, my colouring, and the laughter of us both, confounded as we were by such a novelty, we were hardly capable, he of speaking, or I of listening. On our separating, I immediately fell into thinking how there could be any addition to the number of planets, without overturning my Mysterium Cosmographicon, published thirteen years ago, according to which Euclid's five regular solids do not allow more than six planets round the sun. But I am so far from disbelieving the existence of the four circumjovial planets, that I long for a telescope to anticipate you, if possible, in discovering two around Mars, as the proportion seems to me to require, six or eight around Saturn, and one each around Mercury and Venus. As an illustration of the opposite school, I will take the following extract from Francesco Sizzi, a Florentine astronomer, who argues against the discovery thus. There are seven windows in the head, two nostrils, two eyes, two ears, and a mouth. So in the heavens there are two favourable stars, two unpropitious, two luminaries, and Mercury alone undecided and indifferent, from which, and many other similar phenomena of nature, such as the seven metals, etc., which it were tedious to enumerate, we gather that the number of planets is necessarily seven. Moreover, the satellites are invisible to the naked eye, and therefore can have no influence on the earth, and therefore would be useless, and therefore do not exist. Besides, the Jews and other ancient nations, as well as modern Europeans, have adopted the division of the week into seven days, and have named them for the seven planets. Now if we increase the number of planets, this whole system falls to the ground. To these arguments, Galileo replied that whatever their force might be as a reason for believing beforehand, that no more than seven planets would be discovered, they hardly seemed of sufficient weight to destroy the new ones when actually seen. Writing to Kepler at this time, Galileo ejaculates, Oh, my dear Kepler, how I wish that we could have one hearty laugh together! Here at Padua is the principal professor of philosophy, whom I have repeatedly and urgently requested to look at the moon and planets through my glass, which he pertinaciously refuses to do. Why are you not here? What shouts of laughter we should have at this glorious folly! and to hear the professor of philosophy at Pisa labouring before the Grand Duke with logical arguments, as if with magical incantations, to charm the new planets out of the sky. A young German protégé of Kepler, Martin Hawkey, was travelling in Italy, and meeting Galileo at Bologna, was favoured with a view through his telescope. But supposing that Kepler must necessarily be jealous of such great discoveries, and thinking to please him, he writes, I cannot tell what to think about these observations. They are stupendous, they are wonderful but whether they are true or false I cannot tell. He concludes, I will never concede his four new planets to that Italian from Padua, though I die for it. So he published a pamphlet asserting that reflected rays and optical illusions were the sole cause of the appearance, and that the only use of the imaginary planets was to gratify Galileo's thirst for gold and notoriety. When, after this performance, he paid a visit to his old instructor Kepler, he got a reception which astonished him. However, he pleaded so hard to be forgiven that Kepler restored him to partial favour, on this condition, that he was to look again at the satellites, and this time to see them, and own that they were there. By degrees, the enemies of Galileo were compelled to confess to the truth of the discovery, 
and the next step was to outdo him. Shiner counted five, right and nine, and others went as high as twelve. Some of these were imaginary, some were fixed stars, and four satellites only are known to this day. Here, close to the summit of his greatness, we must leave him for a time. A few steps more, and he will be on the brow of the hill, a short piece of table-land, and then the descent begins. End of Lecture 4 Read by Maganago